Everyone, just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about one minute. Everyone, just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Six Steps to a Successful Hazard Communication Program, presented by KPA. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety Health Magazine. On behalf of the National Safety Council, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start this presentation in a couple of minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own. Do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the Council of the Magazine endorses those items. After this presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type the question, click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts. Please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Again, we thank you all for tuning in this presentation. We'll now turn it over to Emily Hartman, Marketing Communications Manager at KPA. Thank you for joining us for today's KPA webinar. First, I'd like to provide a quick introduction of KPA. With over 30 years of expertise, KPA provides environmental health and safety and HR management solutions through our software and expert consulting services. KPA helps clients identify, remedy, and prevent safety and compliance issues to prevent accidents and injuries, reduce lawsuits, fines, and penalties, improve productivity, and protect your reputation. KPA's solutions help organizations maintain a culture of safety, lower risk for your employees and your businesses, and reduce costs. Learn more at kpa.io. Everything we covered today is meant to be educational and shouldn't be a substitute for your legal counsel. Today's session is being presented by Hunter Taylor. Hunter is one of our compliance consultants here at KPA, who is also a team supervisor for the South Central District, which covers states like Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, New Mexico, and Arizona. He's been with KPA for about four years now and has a wealth of experience in safety and compliance. With that, I will turn things over to Hunter. Great, thanks Emily. We're gonna to start to today's uh, webinar off talking about just OSHA in general a little bit and um, hazard communication, and then we're gonna jump into more of a how to actually implement a successful HASCOM program today 
and talk about these different points here. So OSHA fines have increased uh, 6.2%. Uh, that is a, they tend to increase each year, but this is definitely the largest increase in the base penalty amounts in the last few years. So always good to know um, what the penalties may be. Uh, you can see them broken down here as well by type of violation, serious, other than serious, as well as willful and repeated. But big thing here is that OSHA fines are continuing to increase and the federal government is continuing to focus on OSHA and these regulations. Here's a little breakdown of the uh, citations for 2021. You can see that the number one for citations on this, this uh, graphic here is fall protection. Uh, that is one of the big emphasis programs for OSHA and has been for the last few years. Uh, and you can see a breakdown as you go down here for all the others for the top 10 on this graphic here. Hazard communication is what we're going to be speaking about today. It, it did move down to number five in 2021. And in previous years, it has been ranked number two for quite a while. At least the last five years has been at number two. So did go down a little bit, but still a uh, very important issue uh, when it comes to on-site audits for ocean inspectors. Another important thing to point out here is that the overall number of issued citations was lower in 2021 than it was in 2020. So it was actually down just over 3,000 citations, so down around 12.5% from last year. This is a great graphic that I pulled from a uh, Safety and Health magazine that shows what we're looking at the number five cited hazard communication standard for the year. It shows how many total violations there were and where it was last year, but also what are the, what are the sections specifically of the hazard communication standard that were cited. So you can see here in order that number one was a written hazard communication program. Number two was training on hazardous chemicals used um, in each employee's work area. Three is readily available safety data sheets for each hazardous chemical stored on site. Four is proper labeling of hazardous chemicals on site. And five is obtaining safety data sheets from the chemical manufacturer and importer for each hazardous chemical used on site. And it breaks down the, the amount of violations for each one, but this really gives us a good framework for our talk today regarding hazard communication. Looking at where the citations have been in previous years, and then specifically what areas um, OSHA inspectors are actually citing, really gives us a good framework on where we should be focusing our time and efforts to have a successful hazard communication program. So next, what prompts an OSHA visit? We've got national and regional regional emphasis programs. I've just included region six because that's where most of my clients work, but you can see a regional emphasis program for your area if you go to OSHA.gov and look and just keyword search regional emphasis program. Fall hazards is a is is a common one that has been a focus in general industry over the last few years. In the South, heat illness is a common one. Um, as well. Of course, national emphasis programs, COVID has been a focus over the last few years, as well as the others mentioned there. So other things that, that could prompt an OSHA visit, employee complaint is a big one, as well as OSHA reportable incident. We're going to get into that here on the next few slides. All right, so what is an OSHA recordable incident and what are the record keeping requirements? So you can see here the breakdown of what is an OSHA Form 301 an OSHA 300 log, as well as an OSHA Form 300A. So the OSHA 301 is the actual injury and illness incident report. 
So that has to be notified within seven days of a what's considered a recordable incident. So anything beyond first aid is something that needs to be recorded. Uh, there are such things, we'll get into reportable incidents here in just a minute. Your next graphic in the middle is the actual log. So that's just going to log or classify the work-related injuries for the facility throughout the year. That is going to be what is considered recordable. So something you can see ones that have, that as a result of death, loss of consciousness, or days away from work, a medical treatment beyond first aid must all be recorded. And then you have your OSHA Form 300A, which has to be posted each year. That actually categorizes the previous year's injuries and has to be posted from February 1 to April 30th around your facility. All right, when do we have to report to OSHA? So injuries that are required to be reported to OSHA. If you unfortunately have an employee fatality, it's re required to be reported within eight hours. If you have a inpatient hospitalization as a result of a work-related incident or a amputation or loss of eye related to a work-related incident, then you need to report to OSHA within 24 hours. This is very important. If you do not report within these time periods, then you open yourself up to potentially much higher fines based off OSHA and on-site investigations. And then three options for how to report the event. You can call your local area, OSHA area office by telephone. You know, we recommend electronically. That's really going to be a method that we do recommend, but you do have to be careful. Not all states acknowledge electronic reporting, so you may need to go through by calling your local OSHA area office or by using the 24-hour OSHA hotline. So you can see the states that do not acknowledge electronic reporting shown at the bottom of the slide. Excellent. Always good to look through, kind of get a framework for OSHA, look at those previous citations from the previous year to kind of set us up for our topic today of how to implement a successful hazard communication program. So the agenda, as you see here, what we're going to be focusing on, we're going to start with the standard and actually looking into the standard, becoming familiar with it, making sure that we have assigned responsibility. We'll get into that. We'll talk about a written program, what that looks like and how to implement it, container labeling, safety data sheets, training. And then, of course, a very important part as well is if we do all these first five steps, we need to make sure that we are evaluating and reassessing our program moving forward as we have new chemicals coming on site, new hazards that need to be addressed. As our, as our businesses change or we get different chemicals, employees handling different chemicals. Starting with the hazard communication standard, you can see the standard reference at the top there, 29 CFR 1910-1200 is hazard communication. This little picture here kind of gives us a breakdown of what we're going to be looking at or the process here of who's responsible for what. So we'll start with the chemical manufacturers and importers. They are the ones that actually classify the hazards of the chemicals that they produce or import. They should be the ones that are preparing the labels or the SDSs based off their classifications of the chemicals. Those chemicals are then shipped to the employers where the employers are receiving those containers, ensuring that the SDSs and the labeling of those chemicals are correct. And then the employers also should have the written hazard communication program, which we're about to get into, that talks about or keeps a list of the hazardous chemicals used on site. And then the last part here is showing the actual implementation, which is keeping those containers labeled properly, maintaining SDS sheets on site, and then training our employees that work at the facility about the hazards of the chemicals that they use in their workplace 
and making sure that they know how to get access to the safety data sheets for the chemicals that they use to explain the hazards so that they're aware of those that they are around each day. All right, starting with the standard, you can see on the right side picture here showing a breakdown of different paragraphs of the standard as well as appendices that kind of show different areas of it. We're going to be focusing in on the written hazard communication program, labeling safety data sheets and training specifically today. You can see a full breakdown there in that picture. One of the biggest things we can say with hazard communication is that it's a continuing program. It's something that we're continuing. It's ever-evolving, new chemicals coming on site, SDSs that change for chemicals, making sure that chemicals that are received are properly labeled is important. So assigning responsibility for initial and then ongoing activities is vitally important in order to stay in compliance. Designating em employees to coordinate implementation of the program. So those are some of those at the beginning, really starting with uh, trying to implement a hazard communication program, having somebody in charge of that. The standard does allow flexibility in order for different employers to comply with the laws, but it's, it, it, it does allow flexibility, but it's important to make sure that we're reading and understanding the standard and then uh, figuring out a way to comply with the rules. All right, so what is a chemical hazard? You can see on the right side here, what are considered health and physical hazards and a list of those listed out. The definition for a hazardous chemical is any chemical that is classified as a physical hazard or a health hazard, and then as well as a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, biophoric gas, or a hazard not otherwise classified. So you can see a list of what is labeled out here. Hazard classification is done by the chemical manufacturer employer. I think this is the one that always scares people a lot is that they think, well, I don't know how to classify that, classify the hazard. Well, it should be done by the who you receive the chemical from. The labeling, the class, you know, should come and show, you know, what are the hazards of this chemical? Is it flammable? Is it combustible? You know, a different type. It should you should be able, those things should be handled and labeled out on the safety data sheet that come from the chemical manufacturer or importer. So it's important to make sure that this process is done correctly, uh, you know, that, that you're actually receiving a proper chemical. So it's not all upon the chemical manufacturer importer, but it's because those that receive the chemicals should know and be trained on making sure that they're receiving a proper safety data sheet as well. All right, so here, here's going to be, we're going to go through a few steps here on how to actually implement a written hazard communication program. We're going to start with surveying our workplace for hazardous chemicals. So a few different things you could do to start that process, reviewing purchase orders of chemicals, identifying chemicals and containers that you're aware of already. Think about chemicals that are generated during work operations. So for example, could be welding fumes, could be dust, could be exhaust fumes, are all potential sources of chemical exposures. So it's good to think broad when it comes to hazard communication, cover chemicals in all forms. So it could be liquids, solids, gas, vapors, fumes, and mist. All of those uh, can be encompassed when we're thinking about or surveying a workplace for hazardous chemicals. So the hazardous nature of the chemical and the potential for exposure are the factors that determine whether a chemical is covered. After we survey our workplace, we're gonna create an inventory. We're gonna create a list. How that list is kept, is could be a few different ways. It could be kept by product name 
It could be by common name or chemical name. The important aspect of this requirement is that the term used on the list must also be available on both the SDS and the label so that these documents can be cross-referenced. So it's important, whichever way you choose to keep your chemical inventory, that you're making sure it aligns and is, has the same information both on the SDS and the label as well. So the list of hazardous chemicals for the entire workplace, you know, it may be suitable for smaller facilities, but at larger facilities, it may be more convenient to compile a list of hazardous chemicals by work area and then have an overall list for the entire workplace. So like I said, the standard is open to handling it in different ways, but um, it is important. It's open to be able to, uh, to, for smaller facilities versus larger, but just have to make sure that, that we have a full list of all the hazardous chemicals. Some of the exempted materials include food, drugs or cosmetics brought into the workplace for personal consumption by workers. So those are things that do not require a safety data sheet by the hazard communication program. Employers are also required to obtain missing safety data sheets if your supplier doesn't send one with a chemical shipment. So you can request one from the supplier. It's a great idea to document these requests, either by keeping a copy of the letter or an email um, regarding the conversation, uh, you want to be able to show a good faith effort to make to receiving the safety data sheet because this is an area that you can potentially be cited for if OSHA inspector was to come on site and you were you had an employee using a hazardous chemical that didn't have a safety data sheet. Our recommendation, you know, recommendation would be to not do not allow workers to use hazardous chemicals until you have a safety data sheet. The SDS, you know, provides that important information needed for the employee to make sure that they're using proper protective measures to protect themselves and limit their exposure to those hazardous chemicals. All right, so the written program needs to include how an employer will inform workers of hazards that are outside of their normal work routine. So for example, in a manufacturing facility, it may be necessary to periodically drain or clean out a certain erector vessel, for example. This task is a, something that's not done all the time, but is done every once in a while. Those workers that are doing that task could be exposed to cleaning chemicals that are not normally in their workplace, um, and the usual controls for the process may not protect them. So PPE may need to be worn. So it's important to, we also have to think about not chemicals that are used every single day, but chemicals that are used for those every once in a while processes to keep things maintenance around your facility. And at the bottom of this slide, you'll see I've attached a link to a, an example or a template of a hazard communication written program put out by OSHA that can be used as a starting place, um, at least to get you thinking in the right direction for formatting for a written hazard communication program. The program has to be specific to your facility. That's very important. So please hear that, but definitely wanted to make sure that you have at least some starting place uh, when it comes to beginning to prepare a written HASCOM program. Hazardous chemical labeling. So under the previous standard, the chemical suppliers uh, were not given specifications on how to identify and communicate hazards. The label requirements for the revised hazard communication standard are more specific, which the whole goal of that is to lead to increased 
uniformity across the board. So this should benefit employers and workers by providing information in standardized language and graphics, making it easier to understand and helping to ensure that labels on containers of the same chemical from different suppliers have the same information. So some things that have been updated or added under HASCOM update in 2012 is pictograms. So you can see a graphic on the right side of the slide here that shows pictograms, black symbols with a white background, and the red diamond border. So these are an important aspect to a hazard communication program. The pictogram draws the attention of a label reader. It also communicates hazards based off of a picture, which is really helpful. You know, sometimes pictograms have symbols which resemble the hazardous effect, and others are merely meant to attract attention. OSHA does not regulate environmental hazards, so the environmental pictogram located in the center bottom row is not required under the OSHA standard. However, you will see this pictogram used on labeling and SDS sheets to communicate environmental hazards. Other things to know about hazardous chemical labeling. You know, the standard is flexible, like I mentioned. Employers may just relabel containers as, as needed or label other containers used in the workplace as long as workers have immediate access to the specific information about the physical and health hazards of the chemical. You know, there are uh, alternative methods for labeling, and we're gonna kind of hit some of those here. You can see obtaining labeling from third-party companies. There are other companies out there that, that can provide stickers or labels that can help with this. I mentioned a few here. This is not an exclusive list, but Granger, Uline, as well as Carlton Industries are all are three that can be used. Lots of great companies out there that provide good HASCOM labeling. You know, uses of signs, placards, process sheets, batch tickets, operating procedures, or other written material instead of affixing labels uh, to each individual secondary container is an option as well. Portable containers. So this is a question get, that comes up a lot. Portable containers in which hazardous containers are transferred from a labeled container but are used for immediate use are not actually, do not actually have to be labeled. So I always uh, warn clients on this one because sometimes people think, oh, well, that just means I don't have to label that container that I use to pour oil into a vehicle or whatever they're working on. But this is, it says immediate use. So that means if you pour a chemical into a container that's not labeled, it has to be put into an engine, put into a waste container, whatever it is, immediately. If it sits there for any period of time, then you're opening yourself up for potential for not being in line with the hazard communication standard. And the last one here is is using third-party workplace uh, labeling systems. So there are some other uh, labeling systems out there that that uh, give numerical ratings for indicating hazards. Um, examples of those are uh, National Fire Protection Association or NFPA or the Hazardous Materials Identification System, HMIS. They may be used in conjunction, in conjunction with the supplemental information on the label to ensure that workers have complete information, as long as the ratings are consistent with the hazard definitions in Hazard Communication Standard 2012. So the criteria used to assign the numerical ratings reflect the hazard categories in each hazard class in Hazard Communication 2012. So for example, these, these third-party numerical ratings, uh, these systems generally use the number one to indicate the lowest degree of hazard and the number four is the highest degree. 
this is actually opposite of the hazard category numbering in HASCOM 12. So if, if an employer, you know, you're preparing labels based on the information on the safety data sheets, you must ensure that the numbers are properly applied to reflect the accurate degree of hazard information. If you decided to use third-party labeling, just make sure that it matches up with the uh, hazard class for, on the safety data sheet from HASCOM 2012 standard. This is just an example of what a uh, proper label should look like and kind of going through where each thing should be and uh, what those are. So we'll start at the top, a product identifier, and that's, you know, chemical, common, or trade name or designation that the chemical manufacturer or importer chooses to use on the label. Next is our pictogram. You'll see a flammable pictogram on this example, but we just talked about what that is, but it's it's got it's the visible representation of what the hazard is in a picture form. Signal words, so you see the example danger that indicates the relative level of severity of the hazard and alerts the reader to a potential hazard on the label. There are only two, two words used as signal words, danger, which signifies a more severe hazard, and warning, which signifies a less severe hazard. And the last two here are hazard. Hazard statements describes the nature of the hazard of a chemical. For example, you can see here extremely flammable gas is, a, is the hazard statement. Precautionary statement describes recommended measures that should be taken to minimize or prevent adverse effects resulting from exposure to the hazardous chemical or improper storage or handling. So there are four types of precautionary statements. There's prevention, response, storage, and disposal. So you, see, you can see the example shown on this slide here. And then of course the information regarding the manufacturer or importer as well. Here are a few areas of focus for looking at specifically hazard communication labeling to make sure that you would be ready and compliant if you were to have an OSHA inspector come on site to review your process. So important to make sure that you're designating responsible people for ensuring compliant labeling of shipped and in-plant or containers that are stored on-site. Next would be description of written alternatives to labeling. So we mentioned some of those potential differences on the previous slide. If you have a different way of labeling some of those stationary process containers, making sure that that's detailed out and you have a description of that in your program as well. Appropriate labels of all workplace containers, including those received from a supplier, secondary containers, and stationary process containers. Next would be a description and explanation of labels on both shipped and workplace containers included in the employee training program. So you'll start to see how these things start to overlap uh, once we continue to go on here, is that it's, it's important, you know, that the labels are correct, but also that we're teaching the employees about how to read these labels and understand the hazards that they're exposed to in the workplace. And then reviewing the procedures as well as updating workplace label inf information when necessary. So sometimes suppliers will send out an updated safety data sheet for the chemical that you use. Usually don't see major changes, sometimes we do, but most of the time it, uh, small changes, but you have to make sure you have the most up-to-date safety data sheet for each chemical on site and available. This slide just breaks down safety data sheets in general. You can see an example of at least the first page of a safety data sheet on the right side there. And then 
showing the different sections of a safety data sheet. One through 11 and 16 are what is mandatory. And then there are a few non-mandatory sections included in 12 through 15. So SDSs uh, are the source of detailed information for hazardous chemicals. They're going to include information for many different audiences, not only employers and workers, but also safety and health professionals, as well as emergency responders, government agencies, and consumers. So the safety data sheets have generally been organized uh, so that information of that's used the most to exposed workers, emergency responders, uh, and others uh, who do not need extensive technical detail uh, is in the beginning of the safety data sheet. So the way that it's organized is, is based off need and for those that, that need it for a emergency situation. While the more technical information most read by health and safety professionals is in the later sections. So for example, a description of a chemical's health effects appear in section two under hazard identification, but the toxicological data upon which the determination of these effects is based appears in section 11. So that you can see the, the more technical information is later on in the document versus the readily available information for the employee or manager is at the beginning in section two. Those non-mandatory sections that I talked about um, address information that typically involved with other government bodies, for example, EPA for some of the, and those are not under OSHA's jurisdiction. So even though those sections are not considered by OSHA, the headings are, are still required to be present on the safety data sheet. All right, so let's hit a few of the best practices for safety data sheets. We talked about that process when we first got into this about that the chemical manufacturers and importers and distributors are responsible for ensuring that their customers are provided a copy of these safety data sheets at the first shipment and when the SDS is updated with new and significant information. So it's important that you're ensuring that you receive those. The employers are responsible for having a safety data sheet for each hazardous chemical used on site. So you can rely on the information received from their suppliers unless you know that that information is incorrect. If you do not receive it, an SDS automatically, you must request one as soon as possible. And if you receive a safety data sheet that is obviously inadequate, for example, has blank spaces in the document, you must request an appropriate, appropriately completed one. If your request for an SDS or for a corrected SDS does not produce the information needed, you should contact your local OSHA area, area office for assistance in obtaining the safety data sheet. Employers must maintain the current version of the safety data sheet. If a new SDS is received with a the shipment, they must maintain and make available the new SDS. All right, other things to keep in mind. SDSs must be available in English, as many large manufacturers are also producing SDSs in other languages uh, to accommodate their workers. If you have workers who speak other languages other than English, you may be able to ask your supplier to obtain SDSs in other languages to ensure effective hazard communication. So you can have SDSs in other languages, you just have to have at least the original in English. Employers must maintain copies of the SDSs in their workplace and ensure that SDSs are readily available. That is a very key part to remember when it comes to safety data sheets. They have to be readily accessible to workers when they're in their work areas during their work shifts. So this is this. Accessibility may be accomplished in many different ways. 
you must decide what is appropriate for your particular workplace. Some employers keep the SDSs in a binder in a central location. Others, particularly in workplaces with large number of chemicals, provide access electronically. So to keep in mind, if you if you however if you access if you have access to SDSs that are provided electronically, you should have a backup system in place in the event of a power outage, equipment failure, or other emergency involving the primary electronic system. As long as workers can get the information when they need it, any approach may be used. When workers must travel between workplaces during a work shift, uh, SDSs may be kept at the primary workplace facility. All right, maintaining safety data sheets. So here's another, we're just gonna hit a few areas of focus uh, that an OSHA inspector might look at when it comes to maintaining safety data sheets. So first, first one here is responsible, designating a responsible person for obtaining and maintaining, and then determining how you're gonna maintain them. Physical copies, electronic, and how can workers obtain access to them? That's very important to make sure that, you know, you can have them all on site, but if your workers can't get access to them easily, that can be a problem. Three is procedures to follow when the SDS is not received at the first time of shipment. So how are you going to, you know, who's gonna reach out to the supplier to get that SDS that wasn't received before. And then having an SDS for each hazardous chemical in the workplace and training for those workers that it includes a review of SDS format and use. So really important to make sure that, we're about to hit get into training, but it's really important to make sure that you have the safety data sheets, that your employees have access to them, but then also that your employees know how to read the safety data sheet and understand how to get the information that they need that can tell them what are the hazards that I'm exposed to uh, in my work area each day. All right, so this slide's gonna kind of break down the specific training requirements from HASCOM 2012 standard. So you can see that employers requires employers to both provide certain information to employees and to train employees. So that would be the general information on the left, and then also the more specific information under the training heading on the right. So for information, you know, in order to train employees effectively, the workers in the training must be able to comprehend the hazards in the workplace and ways to protect themselves. OSHA doesn't expect that workers will be able to recall and recite all data provided about each hazardous chemical in the workplace, but they do expect that they have a general understanding of the hazards in the workplace and how to protect themselves. So that is an important one to keep in mind. What is most important is that workers understand that they're exposed to hazardous chemicals, know how to read labels and safety data sheets, and have that general understanding of what information is provided in these documents and how to access them. Accessibility is key. Workers must also be aware of the protective measures available in their workplace, how to use or implement these measures, and who they should contact if an issue arises. So those are really important things to keep in mind when it comes to how you're looking at training your employees on the chemicals and hazards that, you, that are in your workplace. So information and training may be done either by an individual chemical or by hazard class or category. The standard doesn't specify how you do it. It's just that you have to make sure that you cover all, all of that information. So if there's only a few chemicals in the workplace, you may want to discuss each one individually. 
where there are a large number of chemicals, you may want to train generally based on the hazard classes and categories to the workers that have access to the to those specific substances that, that show those hazards. All right, other things that need to be covered are methods and observations that may need to be used to detect the presence or release of a hazardous chemical in the workplace, such as monitoring conducted by the employer, continuous monitoring devices, visual appearance or odor of a hazardous chemical when being released. Other things listed here, physical health hazard, simple asphyxiation, combustible dust, or biophoric gas hazards, as well as hazards not, other cl not otherwise classified of the chemicals in the work area. And then a re really important here is the measures that employees can take to protect themselves, including specific procedures the employer has implemented to protect employees from the hazardous chemicals in their workplace. That's a really key point, making sure that your employees know that as the employer, you're providing ways to allow them to protect themselves from the chemicals that they're around on a regular basis. And then the details of the program that also include an explanation of the labels received on shipped containers, as well as the workplace labeling system used by the employer, the safety data sheet, including the format of the safety data sheet and how employees can obtain and use the appropriate hazard information. All right, a few training best practices. So you can find a lot of different information in this area, but these are some of, some of the ones uh, that I found to be effective, you know, making sure that you're presenting in a manner and language that is understandable to your employees. Really important, you know, if you you may have in instances where you need to obtain training in other languages or have an interpreter to make sure that certain employees are getting the information uh, that they need to understand these hazards and where and how to protect themselves when needed. So in those situations, you know, it's important that, that you're communicating in a language that's understandable to your employees. Creating a culture where workers feel okay to ask questions is a big one so that they can ask if they don't know how to get access to the safety data sheets or read the safety data sheet labels that they're, that they're, they don't feel scared to ask, ask uh, the questions. That's really key understanding the material and being able to motivate people to learn. So that will make a big difference on how well the information is actually received from your employees. So having a base understanding of it, but also being able to really get people excited about keeping in compliance and really keeping employees safe. That's when I do trainings regarding hazard communication, I'm always focusing on this is all of these standards are put in place so that you can be protected as the employee, that you can come to work the same way that you came to work is the same way that you go home, you know, is, is, a, is a goal, you know, trying to make sure that you're taken care of here at this workplace. You know, different ways of presenting, there's lots of options there, slides, videos, interactive programs. So usually a combination of those um, is what is most effective to keep the workers' attention. Encouraging participation. This is huge. This is how you can really get an understanding of how well your audience understands what your topic is, is just by asking questions. You'll quickly know how well your audience understands the information by asking questions and encouraging, asking questions that encourage the participants to actually be a part of the presentation versus just sitting and listening and, you know, losing attention quickly. And then be relating the content to their specific work 
place conditions or work area. Another thing, if, if you're talking about something that is relatable to their area or that relates to them and their work, they're going to be much more in tune typically with uh, the training that you're presenting. So you can see I've attached a document here at the bottom. It's just a quick, quick guide for hazard communication training, just some tid different best practices and other things that can be used to help you have successful training for, for your hazard communication program. All right, a few OSHA areas of focus for hazard communication training. Right back to it, like we have in the previous ones, designating a person to be responsible for conducting the training is important. What's the format? How are you going to present the material? As well as elements of the information and training program, and then including the procedure to train new workers at the time of their initial assignment of work. So important to make sure that you're taking time to address new employees coming in or also training workers when a new chemical hazard is introduced into the workplace. So it's really important. And like I mentioned before, you've got to show a good faith effort to an ocean inspector that you're training workers. So whenever potentially you have you could could have an ocean inspector come on site, they can talk to workers to determine if they've received training and they can they will do employee interviews to ask questions to workers about their understanding of the hazardous chemicals that they use in their workplace, how to get access to safety data sheets, those type of questions. It wouldn't take them too long to figure out whether you've actually trained uh, your employees on how to access this, this information versus if you haven't. So really important to keep that in mind that those are kind of some of the tactics we've seen used by OSHA inspectors is uh, asking those questions to your workers out in the facility about the training that they've actually received. All right, to wrap it all up here, our last step is evaluating and reassessing our program. So making sure that um, you know our program is continues to be accurate. It's something that you know needs to remain up to date. You know, it'll be necessary to periodically evaluate and reassess as needed. The information must be accurate. Got to have a, a list of that, an accurate list of hazardous chemicals on site as a part of the program. That's the chemical inventory we talked about. When new chemicals are purchased, the list has got to be updated, um, as well as revisions to the inventory should be made when you eliminate chemicals in the workplace or when you bring in that new chemical. So important to make sure that you're keeping that up to date and then making sure that you're receiving the proper safety data sheet when you have those new chemicals coming on site as well. So really important, you know, to keep up to date. This is an ever evolving program. That's why we talk about it, reassessing it because new chemicals, there's new safety data sheets. There's chemicals that we have been using that we're not using anymore. So there's different things that, that will change over time. So it's important to make sure you have somebody looking at these things on a regular basis. Other things to help keep things up to date is actually walking around your facility and checking that containers are labeled. That's an important thing, making sure that workers are following established work practices to protect themselves from chemical exposure. We can have all the great labeling that says, you know, says what the hazards are, but it's important as well that employees are actually using the PPE or using what is recommended to help limit their exposure as well. Proactive monitoring of the workplace is critical to continue to ensure that, you, that your facility is remaining compliant with the hazard communication standard. And then we talked about reviewing those new SDS sheets whenever they come on site, 
and then making sure that you have a process in place to determine whether any handling procedures need to change or any changes to the protection against those hazards for your employees needs to be made. So that's a really key part here when it comes to reassessing is that we're not only receiving the correct SDS sheet, but we're taking the time to make sure that if there are new hazards available or new hazards in that are posed by that chemical, that we're actually taking the time to change our procedures for our employees to make sure that they're pr protected uh, from those hazards. This picture here just kind of wraps up the entire presentation showing how to have an effective hazard communication program. So you can see the six steps we went through today. You know, it is vitally important to make sure that as an employer that you are managing all hazardous chemicals on site, that they're identified properly, that you're you're taking the proper measures to implement how to access safety data sheets, safe handling of these chemicals, and then understanding those hazards and communicating them to your employees through training, and then making sure that it's really important that that employer that the employees actually know how to access this information if needed right, in the case of an emergency situation. Here's just some of the resources. Most of the information for this presentation is pulled directly from the OSHA website, a specific document that, that uh, can be really helpful for you. OSHA puts out safety and health topics about different areas. You can find a lot of good short documents or those quick takes on OSHA.gov about hazard communication and other topics. If you are in a state that has um, a specific state plan, make sure that you check that out. There are different states that have standards that are beyond the federal standard. Um, so it's important to make sure that you look at that. And then this specific document I uh, used a lot in this presentation was the small entity compliance guide for employers that use hazardous chemicals. So a lot of good information in there to help us implement a successful hazard communication program. Well, thank you so much, Hunter, for this fantastic, insightful presentation. Before we start the Q&A, I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. Um, so now let's get to some questions. Uh, first, do you have to have an SDS for non-hazardous materials or cleaning products? So non-hazardous chemicals are not required to have a SDS sheet. Hazardous chemicals, uh, which include any chemical which is classified as a physical hazard or a health hazard, simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, or pyrophoric gas um, are required to have a safety data sheet. The thing that is helpful is that to remember is, is that the hazard classification is to be completed by the chemical manufacturer. So I think a lot of times employers think they're the ones that have to determine whether that chemical needs a safety data sheet or not. That's actually determined by the chemical manufacturer. So you just need to make sure that you have obtained it from them. So that's that's more the employer's responsibility is to make sure that they have the safety data sheet from the chemical manufacturer. Our next question, does an online SDS database available through an app comply with the OSHA requirement for needing an SDS available on site? 
Yes, you can have uh, electronic access to safety data sheets. Uh, there's a few stipulations with that. Uh, one, you wanna make sure that it's included within your organization's hazard communication plan or program. So it's written in there. Um, you should be able to access hard copies of safety data sheets if requested by employees. So having the ability to print a hard copy of a safety data sheet uh, from an electronic database, whether that's a website or app, uh, you should be able to get a hard copy if needed. And then as I mentioned in the presentation, uh, you also should have some type of backup system to access safety data sheets uh, in the case of an emergency or electronic failure where you, you couldn't access those SDS sheets electronically. Our next question, uh, what can we do if a secondary container is so small, a label cannot be placed on it? Good question. Um, I've seen clients use um, something, if it's not, not enough surface area to put an actual uh, tag that sticks to it, I've seen them use um, some type of plastic tagging. Um, Maybe you would need to uh, have a, de a designated location uh, where that chemical is and then have uh, labeling around it um, where it's stored. Um, I haven't run into that too often where the, where the product is too small to be labeled, but I would say um, you wanna have it labeled where it's stored for sure. Uh, and then try to figure out a way if you can use some type of physical tag possibly to tag it instead of a label, uh, that might be an option. So what do you do if a supplier is still using an MSDS? So that would be a case where you'd wanna reach out to the supplier and uh, ask them for the updated uh, SDS, uh, just to see if there's been an update uh, to the safety data sheet. Um, there may there may not have been an, an update to it um, from before, but you just want to reach out to the chemical supplier. Our, our next question: How in depth does an employee's understanding of the standard need to be? I think uh, when you're looking at the hazard communication standard, the training um, is what's really important is that. The chemical that the employ, employees know how to access uh, safety data sheets for the hazardous chemicals that they use within their work area. So being able to get access to those um, is really the whole idea, um, in my opinion, of the program uh, is that you have a written program in place and the employees know how to it mentions specifically in the hazard communication standard, readily available, uh, being able to access safety data sheets uh, and access ha hazardous information about chemicals that the employees are using uh, in their work areas each day. Our next question, what are some examples of a designated person for conducting training? Can this be an experienced worker or does it need to be a safety person? It doesn't specify in the OSHA standard. Um, but it, I, I would say it would need to be somebody that, that uh, you know, has the uh, knowledge base to, to confer the information about hazard communication. Sometimes that's a safety person. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, it could be like, a, like you mentioned, an employee that 
has been designated um, by a safety manager or um, somebody on site um, at, from the upper management of that facility. So doesn't specifically uh, say they have to have certain qualifications uh, to be the designated person, uh, more that just that they're following through and, and uh, making sure that the hazard communication training and program uh, meets the OSHA standards. All right, next question. Does an HMIS label need all six elements of a GHS label? Um, I believe when I referenced it uh, in the presentation, it was making sure that the um, hazard classifications match up uh, with the GHS. Um, that's actually, I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but I would be happy to get back um, with the person who submitted that question. Okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned chemicals used once in a while at a facility. Would would you have some examples from your experience of those type of chemicals? I don't know if I understand the question. <laughs> oh, I was just saying that if, you know, there was chemicals that are used once in a while in a facility, do you have any experience with those type of, of chemicals? And are there any examples? So um, chemicals that, that might not be used um, as, as a part of the regular daily processes. Um, I would say that varies depending upon the industry, but um, maybe you have a special procedure or a um, specific process that happens only you know, quarterly or even twice a year, once a year, that you have to use a specific cleaning product or um, a specific chemical to help with that process. Um, that, that would be the example um, that I could think of. Specific chemicals, I mean, it, it just depends on the workplace, what they're doing, uh, you know, those type of, those type of procedures. So. Okay. Um, yeah, just as a reminder to our audience, if you'd like to ask a question, click the Q and A button at the bottom of the screen and type your question and click the send button. Um, yeah, do you have any any closing thoughts or any other thoughts that you'd like to, to share with the audience while we wait for any uh, remaining questions? Just to say that uh, using, you know, there's lots of great resources on the OSHA website and, um, you know, implementing a successful hazard communication program is something that takes, it's a constant uh, process. So it is something you're, you know, continually gathering information for safety data sheets, training employees. So don't grow weary. Uh, it is something that takes uh, intentional time and effort, but uh, is is a very important part um, of providing a safe workplace uh, for employees. Uh, uh, one uh, question asker has a scenario. Um, a hardware store has several chemicals for sale and are, are of a hazardous nature. Are they required to have a hazard communication program and file all SDSs and include an inventory list? Uh, the OSHA standards sometimes do not, um, do not apply if they have less than 10 employees. Can you repeat the question? 
Oh, sure. Um, a hardware store is several chemicals for sale and are of a hazardous nature. Is that hardware store required to have a hazard communication program and file all SDSs and include an inventory list? Um, there's some standard, obviously within the standard or some standards in OSHA that don't require um, employers to, to follow them if they have less than 10 employees. My understanding is if is if they had if they had hazardous chemicals on site that they would they would need to comply with the standard. Okay. And once again, if, if you all would like to ask a question, um, just click the Q and A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and uh, click the send button. Um, so yeah. Well, thank you so much for this presentation. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for everybody who attended. I uh, appreciate your time today. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much once again um, for everyone. And this ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Hunter oh, Taylor, Emily Hartman, our sponsor KPA, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe. <laughs>